Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. This morning on the program, we're talking about dealing with mental health emergencies and helping somebody else. Just like you can learn CPR for physical health problems, you can learn skills to help people with their mental health, possibly even save their lives in a moment of crisis. Did you know that there are classes you can take? Mental health first aid courses. They're offered in person and virtually. And there's a need for these courses. The number of calls, texts, and chats to the relatively new suicide and crisis lifeline 988, it keeps going up in Minnesota. So today I want to talk with a couple of mental health professionals about how to recognize a crisis and what to do and what not to do, what to say. I want to hear from you as we talk about this. Have you helped other people in a mental health crisis, in an emergency? What did you learn from that experience? And have you been through a mental health crisis yourself? What do you wish other people had known? You can call us at these numbers. Call us at 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828 as we talk about it. Tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. And if you're in crisis right now, you can call, text, or chat at that lifeline 988 to connect with a trained counselor. All right, let's bring in our guests. We have with us Michelle Sherman. Michelle is a Minneapolis-based board-certified licensed clinical psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology. She has dedicated her career to supporting families dealing with mental illness, trauma, and PTSD. And she's also written books for teenagers on how to live with a parent with a mental illness. Good morning, Dr. Sherman. Hello, good morning. So lovely to be here, Angela. Thank you. Yes, looking forward to talking with you. And here in the studio with me, I have Vanessa Ng. Vanessa is the clinical director at the Amherst H. Wilder Foundation in St. Paul. She's a licensed psychologist who has worked in primary care settings and integrated care settings where social services and mental health care are combined. And she has a doctorate in clinical psychology as well. Good morning to you, Dr. Ng. Good morning. Pleased to meet you. Hi. So I've had uh, many conversations on this program over the last few years about the overall decline of mental wellness and the increase in the demand for mental health services. So first, I want to know from from both of you, you know, really, what are you seeing? I'm, I'll start with you, Vanessa. In general, how do you describe what has been happening with people uh, with their mental health and, and their willingness to now seek out professional help? That's a great question. I mean, it's it's the world is a lot different than it was 10, 20 years ago in mental health, where mm-hmm. I think it was still a little taboo to be talking about mental health illness um, and distress. It's a little bit better now. I still think that we're on a learning curve. It's getting better. But, um, you know, there is a demand for our services in the school system. I think people are more openly talking about um, emotional distress. Um, and, and I think the world is just a little bit more welcoming about that. Um, it, it's still a little touchy with some cultural populations uh, where it's still a little bit taboo. In recent immigrant populations, I think that's really difficult. But I think especially during um, the rise of COVID, mm-hmm. um, where people were more isolated and you were kind of stuck with your family and partners with, right. <laughs> with their own distress. And you couldn't, you couldn't hide it. Exactly. Right? right. And so that opened the door to talk about it, it seems. Uh, yeah, you, you can't you can't hide it. And, and it, the funny there's a funny statistic about the rise of divorce during covid mm. because you didn't have anywhere else to go to help 
uh, to help yourself. You couldn't leave the house. You didn't have other people to talk to. So there was some isolation. Mm-hmm. And Michelle, uh, what can you tell us about what you've been seeing just in general with the increase in demand for mental health services and a, and a willingness to say it? Yeah, you know, I think life is hard. <laughs> you know, we all face challenges in different ways. And then in the past uh, five or so years, um, there have been extra challenges. I mean, we think about the rise in, in violence that we see you know, in our communities and the media all the time. Yeah. We think about changes with social media and some of the activities that happen affect certainly our young people, certainly COVID. And, you know, public health um, loneliness, social disconnection is a public health epidemic. Uh, it has just grown more and more during COVID. So people's inability to just have interactions with people at the grocery store or things like that, much less be with loved ones for holidays and things like that. So I think that's totally contributed. Uh, I do agree that there has actually been some increase in openness to help seeking. And I think the structure has made it a little bit easier in that we have so much online therapy. You know, there's so many apps and groups and so many different things to try to make mental health accessible rather than waiting for people to come, you know, quote unquote, to the therapist's office, you know, access and primary care of lots of different places in which we're trying to show up for people, you know, mobile crisis units, these sorts of things that we need to not just be people waiting for folks in distress to come to us, but how can we be present in our communities? through our churches, houses of worship, all sorts of things. So, yeah, I think that the need is great. The need is growing. um, And we as a system, I think, need to be responsive uh, to that need. And, and, you know, in the introduction, I, I mentioned the fact that there are now these these mental health first aid courses that you can take classes where people, you know, just, you know, anyone in the public can just get some training skills uh, on the words to use, what to do, not to do, where to how to help people. And uh, I, I that was news to me. But then it clicked. It made sense in the way that many of us will seek out maybe like CPR training as, as yeah. a, an example. Uh, and, and so what do you think about that? The fact that you can, you know, that these courses are offered as, as an example, we found you can go to like Minneapolis Community and Technical College. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Mankato Clinic offers these classes. Uh, Minnesota North College and Wellness in the Woods. Uh, that there's access now uh, to training so that you could be the person that maybe helps someone in the moment that in, when they're in crisis. And your thoughts about that, uh, Michelle, that this is now Absolutely. available. Is that good? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we look at the statistics, right? You know, about half of all Americans at some point in their life will experience some sort of mental illness. I mean, it's very, very common. So that if you took that number times the number of people who care about them, <laughs> you know, it's like pretty much everybody knows somebody who's dealing with some sort of mental health concern. And so it affects everyone, number one. <laughs> Number two, it can be really scary. It can be really hard to know what to do when someone you love is perhaps talking about whether or not they want to live or is perhaps experiencing uh, really high manic sorts of things and engaging in risky behavior or, is, you know, perhaps uh, misusing alcohol or drugs. I mean, it's super, super scary. And so, yes, the more we can empower ourselves and our community members with skills and how to deal with those really difficult situations, uh, knowledge of community resources, helpful ideas of what to say and what to do. I, I, I think it's wonderful. And I think the Red Cross actually started off with a lot of that. And so they offer mm. these sorts of free classes as well. So um, I'm, I'm fully supportive um, in conjunction with uh, organizations like NAVI and certainly Wilder Foundation and other organizations, houses of worship that we all work collaboratively. But mm. I, I think it's a wonderful idea. I don't know, Vanessa, I don't know what you think. Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely agree. And I think with the, there's a shortage of mental health professionals in, yeah. the, in the yeah. world. <laughs> right? I'm sure absolutely. you know that. I know I know that. 
Um, so we can, we can create a, a, a little army, right, in the public <laughs> oh. if more of us became equipped to talk right. about it in a helpful absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. It takes a village. It, absolutely. It does take a village. We, we all, it's all hands on deck. And, and the thing is, absolutely. when we talk about what's the saying, um, an ounce of prevention over a pound of cure, yeah. if, we're, if yeah. we're all looking at helping people reduce the isolation and, and just creating a caring environment uh, where it's okay to be talking about things, a nurturing environment, um, I think that, that some of that prevention can can really help and and maybe perhaps then get someone to some expert help if they are needing it if they're if they are suffering um but mental health first aid i mean it, i i love how angela stated it it's like exactly like cpr it's a skill that there's a set of skills that we really we can use in all our everyday mm-hmm. interactions but um you know, we, especially for, for folks who really interact with the community, teachers in particular, I think really benefit from this. Health providers already are trained in many, most of these skills anyway. But if you're regularly interacting with the public, mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend it. And so let's talk about um, some of the technical terms that we hear and, and also the way in community how we talk about mental health crises. And I just want to start with, what are we talking about when I say a crisis, an emergency? What does this look like? Are we talking about someone that is is crying or maybe completely shutting down? Is it is it being delusional? Is it threatening to harm yourself or somebody else? Can um, Vanessa give me some examples of someone in significant distress, which is a, yeah. the way I, I asked you, I'm like, how do I talk about this? You say, maybe right. just say someone in distress. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, Yes, to all the examples that you gave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having worked in a primary care environment where we there were a lot of people walking in sometimes and just asking for help. Um, by the way, all, oftentimes to their medical doctor first instead of seeking a, a, a mental health professional. So coming into the emergency room or going into a clinic. Yep, you've seen that. They're more more actually likely to seek medical attention first over mental health attention, which is which is interesting. Um, and so working together is really important. But I, I would say, um, you know, the the most common diagnosis that we we would find, and you know, and and we see just kind of just walking down the street or with our friends and family is uh, anxiety and depression. That's the most likely thing that we're going to see. So when you say um, crying could be, you know, crying is also a normal and healthy function. Right. Um, you know, so so um, weeping just like to the crying point. uncontrollably, right. perhaps. Um, uh, and, and that might just be, um, you know, someone's having a terrible day. It doesn't mean that they're having a crisis. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're um, needing, you know, emergency services or anything. Um, so I think it's it's a. Uh, there, there's a severity factor. Certainly, psychosis. or someone's hearing auditory hallucinations and things like that, that would also be a very explain that more for me. Psychosis and hearing auditory. Yeah. Someone hearing things, right. hearing voices. Exactly. That's um, of psychosis. That's probably of schizophrenia. Anyway, that's probably the most common um, uh, symptom that you would find. And we, by the way, when you take mental health first aid, they're not there to help you diagnose. It's it's complicated. Right. But it's really important to, you know, you're asking for how do you recognize when there is this distress happening? And and certainly, um, so auditory hallucinations, I think, is one point. Paranoia, um, fear of being followed, for instance, or of, um, you know, people, people being working in cahoots together would, mm-hmm. be, would be signs. So in that situation, what would someone either who's living in a household with this person or someone who is you know, seeing them in public, what would you say just to maybe try to calm them down or to find out, like, how do I get you to a safer state or get to you someplace where you're safe? 
Yeah, that's it's a really great question because it's complicated depending on how well right. the distance of fr- from you to that person. If it's your family member, I think just starting a generating a conversation about how are things going. I have noticed you've been isolating more, for instance, or you're not eating very well, you know, and asking open-ended questions. So you're creating a conversation. Um, uh, I would say doing more listening than anything else, an affirmation of their experience. Just uh, So not refuting their experience of, of mm-hmm. whatever is going on. And you're also assessing for risk. Um, so, you know, one thing I forgot to mention is really a crisis is most likely where you're going to see someone who might be in danger of hurting themselves or hurting others. Um, you know, so we have to we have to watch for suicide in that in that assessment initially. And I notice you have a very calming voice. So how can <laughs> you know what should we think about in terms of also the tone and how you're speaking to someone? If this is someone you know and you're close to, mm-hmm. uh, approaching them in just the tone of your voice. Absolutely. I, I kind of forget that that's my that's just my that's how you voice. roll, <laughs> right? Yeah, a lot of us don't roll that way, but <laughs> uh, right. I, I think the the um, bringing your calm to the situation mm-hmm. instead of bringing fuel to the fire is really, really important. They don't want to have to focus on you. They need, they're the ones who are needing attention. So your ability to not ride the roller coaster with someone else, but be on the ground and firm footing and watch that person so that you can kind of be their foundation in that moment. Mm. And uh, Michelle, what would you add to that? A a scenario where it's someone you know, uh, there is uh, significant distress in the form of, um, you know, Maybe, again, the, the sobbing or maybe um, saying things that are disturbing. What would you advise yeah. someone to say or to say in that situation? Yeah, I think it's tricky because I think, as Vanessa said, you know, sometimes when we have really tough things, you know, a death of a loved one, a uh, loss of a job, some emotional distress and things is very understandable. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're in a mental health crisis. So I want to be careful not to kind of pathologize right. normal human reaction, especially culturally. You know, we don't want to say, oh, we have to run off to the hospital if, if someone is in some sort of crisis. So first of all, you know, we are human and part of our emotions is part of who we are. <laughs> and, and secondly, relating back to a theme we said a couple moments ago, the mental health system, the healthcare system can be kind of flooded. And so at mm-hmm. times I'm afraid that if people are just in a regular day of distress and they're reaching out to some system like that, it can be traumatizing actually uh, uh, going to a place where we have to sit in the waiting for three days because there are no beds. You know, So I, I think about, first of all, like these concentric circles. Okay, so starting with our natural supports, can someone have their family member, their perhaps a minister, a friend, a neighbor, whatever else, be, be with the person? If they're not in imminent danger, can if we draw upon their existing mental health team, if they already have a counselor or psychiatrist or someone, can we draw upon that? Or really, are we at the point that they're needing the most intensive extreme Mm -hmm. in terms of psychiatric um, evaluation in a hospital, a mobile crisis team that every Minnesota county has that, by the way, you can call and they can meet you at your house or a restaurant or whatever, Um, these sorts of more intensive services. So I, I like to think on a continuum. Um, with respect to your question of what do you say, um, that is a really important question. And a couple tips I would give include, number one, trying to avoid lots of questions. 
<laughs> because that can evoke defensiveness. And mm. of course, if my loved one is really distressed, I'm going to be scared. You know, my heart rate's going to be going. I'm not know what to do. Um, but to check in and take care of myself at the moment um, and see how can I be present for you? How can I support you right now? I want you to know that I'm here for you. Um, I want to, to support and assist you in any way that I can. Um, I want to show up for you right now. What would that look like? Um, but instead of drilling lots of questions, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing that distress can show up in lots of ways. It certainly can be crying, but also can be absence of emotion. <laughs> it can be the withdrawal. You know, we think about difficulties doing every day, like, you know, they're not going to school or work or they're not going to their volleyball club or whatever, that they're disengaging. Um, certainly increase in use of substances, mm-hmm. all sorts of different things you can see as warning signs or red flags. Um, but giving the message of, I'm here for you, how can I support you right now? Um, and then I think that assessing dangers is really hard. Um, I worked in North Minneapolis for lots of years and people come in in a significant crisis of community violence. I work with veterans for about 17 years, which they've come in on the street and violence. And as a psychologist doing this 30 years, it's hard. And so I think for a family member who's not trained, it's like, holy buckets, I don't know. <laughs> and so what I want to emphasize is 988 is not only for the person in distress, but it's also for you as a family member. Okay. So if I'm concerned about my husband, I'm not sure what to do. I can call that number and say, hey, I don't know what to do. I need help. Um, and so the final thing I'll say is about that is they're on the yeah, error on the side of caution, meaning I would suggest if you're not sure what to do to reach out for help. Now, your family member in distress may be unhappy with you, but I always say I'd much rather <clears throat> them be unhappy with you and you have taken steps to try to keep everybody safe than living with guilt, perhaps, if in the worst case scenario, you know, they do something and you haven't sought out help. Mm. So it's hard, it's difficult, but ask for help. I want to know more about, I mean, how can you tell if someone is... Um in crisis and in need of emergency care versus Mm -hmm. just having a terrible day, terrible day, terrible week, terrible month, having just a really challenging time. Um, How, I mean, can you reasonably discern the difference? And is it just a matter of maybe just taking it day by day to try to get a better sense of that, Vanessa? Yeah, I I mean, again, the closer you are to that person, the more you're going to be able to discern that. So that's where the conversation and already being in relationship with that person is going to be very helpful to know, is this a significant difference from their baseline functioning? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where I say like teachers or folks who regularly interact are, are the best suited to intervene because they're able to say, wait a minute, this person is uh, uh, it, it can't focus. Or they a usually coworker would notice someone coworker, who's seeing you daily. Example, right. and so creating that that already that baseline of we already have a foundation of some friend friendliness between us that I can ask that question. Is this is something going on right now that you know? Can I can I be a listening ear for you? I think we all remember the times that we were carefully listened to. And it feels pretty rare in our lives. And there's something very rehabilitating and very, very supportive and healing about that, those those moments to be able to provide that. But I think also, you know, asking specifically, like, um, if you are seeing very concrete things that are that are worrisome, that create some um, sense of imminent um, danger or physical risk, you know, certainly if we see someone taking a lot of pills, for instance, or um, engaging in reckless driving, things that are just creating some imminent kind of physical um, mm-hmm. uh, behavior that of, could cause yeah, danger. 
right? Exactly. That, that's when I would escalate it. Uh, I want to read some uh, written comments that we're getting in right now and take some phone calls. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, mental health emergencies and how do you help someone who is experiencing a mental health crisis, someone who is in significant distress? What can you say? What can you do? Uh, as a first responder, actually, uh, there are classes you can take on this, but t- today we have uh, two guests who can help us with it with this as well. Uh, have you been through uh, a situation where you've helped someone or have you been through a me- mental health crisis yourself? What did do you wish other people had known? The phone lines are open. Call us at 651-227-6000, or you can call 800-242-2828. Let's uh, take a phone call from uh, a a listener in Minneapolis. This is Pam, who's on the line. Good morning, Pam. And what do you want to share with us? Good morning, Angela. Love your show. Appreciate this program and your guests very much. Um, A year ago, next month, I awoke Earlier than usual, with my new rescue dog scratching at the door, there was a young man parked on my front porch. And um, I I closed the door, got my breath, got my act together, and was able to um, work with him, find out things from him, um, learn what he might need, and ended up calling the 911 to get the BCR folks out, if they were available, the behavioral crisis response team, mm-hmm. you know about them? Mm-hmm. And yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And they showed yeah. up and helped? So, yeah, the, when I hung up with 911, they weren't sure if that was going to be possible or available at that time. But it was, and two wonderful women came out and dealt with him. Um, that was probably a half an hour after I called. And in the meantime, I just... He was on my porch. It was a freezing, windy morning. He'd been there hours overnight, it turned out. Um, I don't want to give away too much because I've come to know his family a little bit, and I want to keep it all private. Sure. But, but Pam, what kind of he, behavior, or what was he saying or doing? Um, well, what? he was on my porch. Yeah. So was he talking <laughs> you know, at all? Yeah. He, I was answer, asking him questions, you know, once I was able to calm myself down mm-hmm. and he, um, you know, I just found out his age and I found out a little bit about where he'd come from. He had been in a psych ward mm-hmm. and um, he had made his way somehow to my house. It's all still a mystery, that part. But um, I asked him questions about his studies and his work and he was willing to answer all my questions. It turns out truthfully, I found out afterwards he was, able to communicate but he was in full psychosis at the time apparently so okay. and Pam what's going been... what's going through your mind are you afraid or you or, or instinctively you're just like let me be calm and try to help what are you thinking when so, you were going through all of this so oh, you start okay. out like oh my gosh is this real you know I'm gonna close the door and regroup and open it again I hadn't had any uh-huh. coffee I'd just been woken up by my right. newish dog well, pretty soon I asked the young man, are you okay with dogs? And pretty soon the dog was in his lap on the porch. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think the dog did most of the heavy lifting. But um, So it, you were that it, person. It, you were the, the first person who had interaction with this young man. Thank you, uh, Pam. And I, I want to ask our guest this uh, question. Uh, what about this decision to call 911? When, how do you make that decision? And was that the right thing uh, in that situation for Pam to do? Uh, what do you think about uh, that scenario, uh, Michelle? 
Oh, absolutely. It sounds like, Pam, you really showed up in a way for that young person that really needed it. And so you were really there. So I think that's awesome. Thanks for sharing your story. Certainly, if it's someone you do not know and they're in your private property, I would absolutely reach out. You don't have a relationship with this person. So absolutely. Um, I think you totally did the right thing. And I wanted to clarify a comment I made a moment ago and make sure it was not misinterpreted mm-hmm. when I said don't ask a lot of questions. And, and that's me in general, drilling someone. But I mean, and we're dealing with crises. Are you in danger? Are you needing emergency help? Are you thinking about hurting or killing yourself? That's a question I think it's important to ask specifically and directly mm-hmm. to our loved ones, to someone else, because that's not something you want to beat around the bush about. Um, they need to, to make their decision. And even if you think they're quote unquote, quote unquote, okay, um, crying out for help or things like that. If they're not able to assure you that they're able to be safe at that time, I think that is definitely a time to reach mm-hmm. out to 988 or 911 and, and let the professionals do that. Part of the good thing is our police units, many of them have social workers embedded. So we have mental health professionals or crisis intervention team, CIT officers, special training in dealing with mental illness and crises. So our system is becoming more responsive. But absolutely, if they are not able to say that they are in danger, if you're seeing some of these behaviors of even just talking about, I'm going to kill myself, I'm giving things away, talking about redoing your will, You'd be better off without me. Mm-hmm. All of these sorts of things are, are red flags and things to pay attention to and warrant a specific question. And, and then if they're not able to share your safety, that would be a time, in my opinion, to seek professional assistance immediately. Okay. Vanessa, what do you want to add to yeah, what you heard I, in that call? Yeah, I so agree with what Michelle said. But I also want to add that sometimes people are really re- reluctant. They're apprehensive of asking the question, are you going to hurt yourself or suicide um, for fear that they're planting the seed in someone? And and trust me, they are. you cannot plant the seed. You cannot make someone or suggest to someone that to harm themselves. They're, if they're already there, they're already thinking about it. Um, it's better to err on the side, as Michelle said earlier, of caution and ask the question so that you know in its entirety. And sometimes they don't tell you the truth, but the best you can do is at least ask. If you are in crisis right now, remember you can call or or text the uh, crisis lifeline 988 to connect with a trained counselor. Again, call 988. Again, want to remind you that there are mental health first aid classes you can take. These courses are offered across Minnesota at places like Minneapolis Community and Technical College, as well as Minnesota North College and Wellness in the Woods. Uh, A one-day class that helps you identify, understand, and respond to the signs of mental health and substance use challenges. Uh, There are classes you can take geared towards helping children, teenagers, adults, people in workplaces. We will put some links uh, on uh, our website, nprnews.org, on my show page right after the show. Uh, now back to the conversation. My guests include Michelle Sherman, a Minneapolis-based board-certified licensed clinical psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology. Michelle has dedicated her career to supporting families dealing with mental illness, trauma, and PTSD. And she's also written some books for teenagers about how to live with a parent with a mental illness. We'll ask her more about that. And in the studio, I have with me Dr. Vanessa Ng, the clinical director at the Amherst Wilder Foundation. She's a licensed psychologist as well, who's worked on in primary care settings as well as integrated care settings. And we're taking your phone calls. Have you helped other people in a mental health crisis? What did you learn? Have you been through a mental health emergency? And what do you wish other people had known as they tried to help you? Call us at 651-227-6000 or call 800 242 2828. We have another guest we can add to the conversation, but right now I want to take a phone call from a listener and we'll get to our our third guest. Uh, On the line right now in Minneapolis, we have Abdi Mukhtar. Uh, Good morning, Abdi Mukhtar. And what did you want to share with us? 
Uh, good morning, Angela. Hi. Thank you very much. I appreciate you and your guests having this very important conversation. About um, four years ago, when I've seen um, the crisis and the connection between mental health illness and substance um, abuse or use, specifically uh, the opioid crisis, I have started a street outreach to help East African youth who are on the streets, who are homeless or who are dealing with um, substance use. Because of the stigma in, in my culture, we don't talk about mental illness. Um, people really are afraid of the shaming and the stigmatization of that. And a lot of our young people are dealing with mental illness. And even with the fentanyl or opioid crisis, we really don't make the connection between mental illness and um, the addiction or substance use. Mm -hmm. So I created the village for these young people who people are not even saying hello to them to give them that human connection. Mm -hmm. So every Friday last four years, you can find me right outside of Cedar Cultural Center giving free pizza and tea to young people. That's really to attract them, but is that human connection and then I can connect to professionals and resources that can help them. But I also see parents who are really depressed, parents who don't know what to do with their kids, how to help them. So this is a huge, huge challenge for my community. And I'm seeing the number of young people who are dealing with mental illness really um, go up. Mm. And I appreciate mm -hmm. you having this conversation. So that's mm -hmm. what I wanted to add. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Abdi Mukhtar there in Minneapolis, thank you for the work that you're doing. And and before you go, you know, what have been some of the responses from these young people? I mean, do they, uh, are, they eager, are they eager to see you? Is it difficult to get them to talk? Or are they they're looking for someone to listen to them? No, so they, they, they really need someone who, they, they need that human connection, that acknowledgement of mm -hmm. even seeing hello to them and then giving them free hugs. So uh, it, it's it's really all of us. It takes the village of making sure that when people are dealing with mental illness and even a lot of times we jump to conclusion, we judge people, we see um, their substance use, but we don't really like to address the mm -hmm. trauma. These kids are crying for help and their parents are crying for help mm -hmm. because they're trying to numb a pain or trauma that exists, and they don't know how to um, ask for help. Right. So right. Ha having me there every Friday and all the volunteers that come to support me um, creates that safe environment for these young people, and sometimes they're parents who don't know what to do. Thank you, uh, Abdi Mukhtar, again, for calling in and sharing the work that you're doing and um, just for dedicating the, your time to doing this. We so appreciate it. Uh, I, Michelle, I, I said in the introduction that you've written books for teenagers about, um, about mental health, about mental illness. And can you tell us a little bit about why you've written these books and, and what's in them? Yeah, you bet. I absolutely love what Abby said, by the way. It takes a community, mm. it takes a village. So bravo, bravo. And just one of the protective factors for crises is community, a feeling connected. And so that's exactly, so I just want to say bravo. Uh, and yes, for your question, mental illness, trauma affects the whole family. And mm -hmm. so often everyone's focused on 
the parent or whoever else is doing it. And that's, of course, understandable. But we know for both nature and nurture, these children are at higher risk of health and mental illness themselves. And so part of my mission in life, frankly, is to see, to understand, and to offer prevention or early support for people who have a level of mental illness, be it if it's your partner, your parent, whomever else. And so, yeah, my mom, who's a teacher, uh, mental health advocate and I have written uh, three books for teens uh, whose parents experience either mental illness or trauma and continue to do work in this area. And so I just need to emphasize that we need to think not only about the person in distress, but everyone around them. Uh, I think it's super important. And the final thing I wanted to say for sure today is a huge uh, risk factor, of course, is access. Okay. And so we talk about how family members and friends can support someone. It is um, working with them to limit access, be it pills, uh, be it guns, and this sort of stuff. That is, I think, a pretty significant way in which family members and friends can show up and support someone in crisis is making sure that they are they are safe in terms of reducing access. Mm. Michelle Sherman, uh, a licensed psychologist, also a book author. And how many books have you written on this, Michelle? We've written three, actually. And now okay. we're writing our fourth one. We're super excited about for adults who love someone with mental illness. So there's okay. such a need and so few resources. So, yeah. All right. Uh, Thank uh, you. Yes. On the line right now, I have another guest, uh, Lou Zeitner. Lou is the vice president of the Mental Health and Addiction Service Line at M Health Fairview in the Twin Cities. He's part of an initiative called Empath uh, for emergency mental health care. It's the first of its kind in Minnesota and only uh, one of a few in the country. And this month, marks the second anniversary of Empath's opening. Good morning to you, Lou. Good morning. Hi. Uh, I, I remember the headlines two years ago uh, that this, this, this new approach for uh, emergency mental health care was coming. Um, first, describe to us, uh, how does Empath work? Uh, what's the approach here uh, for dealing with emergency mental health, Lou? Well, thanks for having me. So the we know that when people come into an emergency department, um, in a mental health crisis, the setting is not ideal. Um, the emergency departments are set up uh, for often trauma and cardiac emergencies, and so they're loud, they're fast-paced, there's a lot of rules, and that isn't always very um, supportive of people in crisis for mental health illness. And so the empath is a part of the emergency department at Southdale Hospital. And once people are medically cleared in the medical uh, ED, they're brought over there. And there are really four advantages that the empath brings. The first is it's a much more calming atmosphere. The lights are less bright. Uh, the sounds are less loud, etc. The second is all the uh, professionals are mental health professionals as opposed to emergency department generalists. The mm-hmm. third is we have much more time. So it's less rushed and less Harried, and as a result, people have an opportunity to to calm. And then fourth, we have the ability to connect people with resources after their their time in the empath. So all four of those have been very helpful in helping people to manage through a mental health crisis. So Lou, help me help me with words. So I come into the emergency room. How do I? What do I say to the first staff person I meet in an emergency room that would, would get me to a, a mental health professional? No, I think there are many ways to to, to do that. Um, oftentimes, recognizing that there's been a problem with sadness, a problem with mm. excessive anxiety. Um, there are some behaviors that have been problematic. Perhaps people are feeling desperate or hopeless. Uh, all of those things would trigger uh, a brief assessment by the nurse at triage mm-hmm. and then some direction towards someone for mental health. 
So it's been two years. Uh, what can you say? Uh, I imagine as you guys go along, you're looking at numbers, you're looking at uh, success stories, you're looking at things that didn't go so well. Uh, as you look back over the last two years, what impact has Empath had? Well, we're we're very proud of what we've been able to accomplish. We've seen over five thousand people in the two years mm. come through the Empath, um, and as a result of the work we've done there and the teams have done in there. We've been able to uh, have almost 85% of the patients be able to stabilize their crisis and not require a higher level of care to be admitted to the hospital. Uh, So 85% of them have been able to kind of calm through the crisis, look at new models of coping, look at some ways that family or others could be supportive, and are able then to return to their pre-crisis level of functioning um, with warm handoffs, you know, to other levels of care, uh, other counselors, psychiatrists, et cetera. So we're very proud of that. And what we've seen is that um, significantly fewer people return to the emergency department for care because they've successfully connected to therapies or, or other care in the community. And do you see this model spreading to other, uh, like, large hospital emergency room settings that, that they can create this, this special place uh, for people who are having mental health crisis? I said that you're just one of few in the country that have something like this. Is it is it catching on? You know, I, I think there are more and more uh, organizations looking at it. Um, we were the first in the, in the state. There are now several. Um, and in addition, we're seeing more and more people asking to tour our facility, mm. um, looking at ways that they might implement that. Um, we had a group uh, just this last week from Virginia looking at the program and thinking about whether or not it would be appropriate for their hospitals. So this Empath is at M Health uh, Fairview Southdale Hospital in Edina. Any other locations here in Minnesota? No, we're lo- oh, well. For us, that's the the one we that's have. The one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one up in St. Cloud. And I know there's one, Sanford has one in Bemidji. All right. That's uh, Lou uh, Zeitner. Lou, thank you for your time. Vice President of the Mental Health and Addiction Service line at M Health Fairview, part of an initiative uh, called Empath for Emergency Mental Health Care. Thank you, Lou. Thank you. All right. Uh, I want to make sure I, I get a chance to get your reaction to what we heard from um, the caller who talked about the East African um, uh, communities. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, he says he saw the need and is spending time talking particularly to teenagers in distress. What, what do you think about that, uh, Vanessa? I love that. I think that that's so absolutely necessary to do that kind of outreach with some of our cultural communities. Um, they a lot of our immigrant populations and, and other cultural communities are not familiar with even the term of mental illness. That doesn't exist in their, their culture of origin. So if the words don't exist, then the problem doesn't exist. Right, right. But what they may come up with is their own cultural idiom of distress. It might be, I have uh, tightness in my head, for instance. That's not a headache. Or I might uh, not be sleeping very much, and they might be t- talking about that or focus more on that, or I can't concentrate. And so those aren't typically classically symptoms of any one thing, but they are not doing well, and they're trying to express it in, in their own language. Um, and so we know that a lot of mental illness, um, especially when we're talking about addiction, is really a disease of isolation. And so part of the, the, the cure is the prevention part, which is creating connectivity between people. Um, I, I love that saying, um, be kind for everybody's fighting a great battle. 
Um, and, and I think that's really true. It, you know, we don't have to just talk about the most acute circumstances that are that create a crisis. It's all of the things that come up before that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wilder Foundation, for instance, has a um, Center for Social Healing where we talk with uh, certain cultural groups and provide a supportive environment, and they don't have a mental health diagnosis. It's meant to create community, um, and that uh, we find is a very healing environment. We're talking about how to help someone who's having a mental health crisis. And I want to remind you, uh, if if you need help uh, or if you want some advice on how to help somebody else, you can call 988. And that is that new uh, mental health crisis line. Call 988. Let's take uh, another phone call from a listener. In Asia, we have Kathleen on the line. Mm-hmm. Good morning, Kathleen. Thank you for waiting. Good morning. And what did you want to share with us? Okay, I've got a lot. So... Be sure to cut me off. We're listening. Go ahead. Talking too much. Um, I want to talk about a my whole life. I've struggled with uh, mental health issues, starting uh, with being I was sexually abused by a relative when I was three. Now, so I'm 63 now. That was a long time ago, and things are really different. Um, My first thought of suicide was at 10. And 10 years ago, I was in crisis and I was ready to die. But the thing that I've never heard anybody say before was my crisis was I was completely pragmatic. I had a plan. I thought as soon as I get, I need to get my financials in order. I need to um, uh, get my, you know, keep my my daughter, you know, all my will, get all that um, organized, then I'll be ready to go. Mm -hmm. Because I just felt like it's just my time to die, that people die of all kinds of reasons. It wasn't like, oh, my, my life is so horrific. I can't stand this pain. It was, oh, it's, it's my time. So your signs and, of distress were maybe different than what many of us may think of signs of, yeah. of, of suicide could be. Right. And so people you, didn't know it. Right. So my family didn't know it. I mean, they lived with me my whole life, my siblings, that they couldn't recognize because that's how I was. So, Kathy, just in the interest of time, what, what do you wish people had known or what advice would you want people to have about you know, how they could help someone in their lives. Okay. Then I'll jump ahead to current. Um, I have a therapist and a medication prescriber. One thing not to do is ask someone who's in crisis or going into a crisis state, because it's not like, boom, I'm in crisis. It's a long ebb and flow journey. So, I talked to my medication prescriber. I had an urgent call with her. And I was pretty much in a, you know, getting into a bad place where I was thinking about dying again. And she was saying, well, how can I help you? Do you want to go to the hospital? I'm like, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. Do you have a plan? Yes, I have a plan. I have a plan and a backup plan. I'm a planner. Um, well, can you should look up... Um, ECT and look up the magnetic helmet brain mm-hmm. information. When, but when someone's 
in a state of mind that they can't think clearly, it's hard to be responsible for what care I need. And that was so Kathleen, the, the thing not to thing. the thing not to do is what or what do you feel like was not helpful? Not asking so many questions. The mm-hmm. person is looking for someone to help them to tell them and like, suggest so what to do. Of saying mm-hmm. what's wrong, what happened? Okay. Say what do you need to tell me? Tell mm. me. All right, Kathleen, I'm going to pause you there again because of time. Um, and Vanessa, what just from what you've heard from Kathleen there, what are you hearing? You look very concerned. Yeah, I, I've I've heard. Um, similar stories from other folks who have been long-suffering, long-term trauma. It's not mm-hmm. about acute mm-hmm. situation, and that requires long-term answers. So there's no quick answer on all of that. And and I think providing that listening ear is, is primary in all of this, um, providing affirmation and reassurance that it makes sense that it results in their experience that they do have. Um, but there's no formulaic answer. And sometimes the mental health professionals have to be around to provide some guidance and do some leading versus just like, mm-hmm. do you want this or do you want that? Like suggest. Uh, Michelle, I know we've got to let you go early. Uh, anything that you would want to say in response to what we heard from um, the listener who just called in? No, thank you for sharing your story. And I hear your pain. Yes. <laughs> this is really hard yeah. and this impact's going to be long term. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess just the last thing I would say is, I'm glad that you sought out help. And sometimes help is a cyclical process. We may need to help now, just like with diabetes, right? It can be over time we need support. And I think a huge part of people when they are times hopeless or thinking, you know, why should I live is what is my purpose? Mm-hmm. What is my reason for being here? What is my reason kind of bed? And maybe it's to take care of your dog when it's go outside. Maybe it's that you've got a neighbor who could use someone to a call or a text to say good morning. Or maybe it's your grandmother or a grandparent. It's like reconnecting with purpose and your reasons for being here. At times that can be hard to grab onto, but holding onto that one time seemed really dark. And then knowing that lots of people are struggling and other people are there to walk this journey with you. Professionals, natural support, all these people get you don't have to go through this by yourself. And loving someone with mental illness or crisis can be very, very straining. So for all of us, myself included, loving family members of mental illness, we got to take care of ourselves. So it's just as important for us to be good to ourselves as it is for the, our loved ones who are struggling. All right, Michelle Sherman, I know we have to let you go a couple of minutes early here. Uh, a psychologist in Minneapolis who has written books for teenagers about uh, how to Live with a Parent with a Mental Illness, Dr. Michelle Sherman. Thank you for your time, Michelle. Oh, Angela, thank you so much. I really, and Vanessa, okay. really lovely to meet you. Best wishes. Nice yeah. to meet you. Yeah, we uh, still have a couple more minutes. Yeah, I want to uh, read this written comment, uh, Vanessa. Uh, Kathy in um, Minneapolis says that she had a crisis situation with her neighbor. She's wondering what resources are available to people who have helped someone in crisis, and now they're dealing with their own trauma afterwards from having such, um, you know, a difficult experience. And what can you speak, say about that? Because it can be, um, you can be left with, you know, sort of your own problems as a result of trying to help somebody with, with their problem. So the trauma of helping someone who's mm-hmm. had a trauma, basically, mm-hmm. boy, I, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot because I work with a lot of therapists. So we're always having right. to help each other. Right. We have a community to support it's each other. Similar. Yeah. yeah, but but to, you know, for a lay person, I think, um, 
I, I would actually advise maybe they talk to a mental health professional. And it's not that they have a mental health illness in that moment, but it's to help digest what happened right. um, and to normalize. Of course, you're going to have a reaction. That's why you wanted to help in the first place is because it pulled at your heartstrings at some point. Um, and, and so I think normalizing that you're going to it's going to linger with you, especially when you have questions about did I do the right thing? Was it enough? And it's a brand new subject or arena for you. And that's where taking a mental health first aid class might be terribly useful mm-hmm. to understand what did I do? What could I have done differently? What could I have done better? Because I think we all ask those kinds of questions. We are out of time. But again, I want to uh, remind people a couple of things. 988, a mental health crisis line. You can call 988 if you uh, have concerns about yourself or someone else. Also, again, mental health first aid classes available across the state of Minnesota. We're going to put links to those, some of those resources on our website, nprnews.org. On my show page, you'll find it there. Thanking our guests still here in studio with us, Vanessa Ng, uh, Clinical Director at the Wilder Foundation, a licensed psychologist. Uh, thank you for your time and all that you've shared. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. All right. Uh, this conversation today was produced by Danelle Cloutier. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.